2: gets twisted and your mind grows numb when you think you're too old too young too smart or too dumb when you're lagging behind and you're losing your pace in the slow motion crawl of life's busy race no matter what you're doing if you start giving up if the wine don't come to the top of your cup if the wet you sideways with the one hand holding on and the other starts slipping and the feeling is gone and your train engine fire needs a new spark to catch it and the woods you finding but you're lazy to fetch it This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one poem at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheel and Rob Kelly and our good friend Tara Zook is back. Hi, Tara. Hello there. I'm so thrilled to have you again. I love talking to you and so I'm glad we're getting a chance to do the show again so soon. You were just on a couple episodes ago, but we're here now to talk about an unusual uh, piece of the Dylan canon, which is last thoughts on Woody Guthrie, the (laughs) one and only poem bob dylan has ever performed aloud Uh, this uh, this was recorded on april 12th 1963 and it remained a bootleg until 1991 when it was part of the bootleg series and this was something that i had did not know existed until the bootleg series had come out and it immediately became kind of one of my favorite things because it is so unique and that it is the one poem ever that bob dylan has has said out loud so uh, tara you asked about this one about wanting to do this one why did you want to talk about this
1: well, you're right. It's Number one, it's unusual. It's something unique. He's never read one of his poems out loud. I know back in the 60s, he was writing a lot more poetry. I don't know if he's privately producing poetry now, but, you know, there was stuff in uh, broadsides. There was stuff uh, being shared around on the album covers as well. Like you, right. And you've got things like 11 outlined epita- epitaphs and things like that. So he was far more like kind of poetic based at that point. Um, and to have him actually read one aloud in front of an audience was incredible. So that was the first reason that, and I was like you until I, I heard it uh, when it was released. You know, it just blew me away. Everything about it blew me away, which we'll talk about in a minute with this performance and stuff. Um, but the second reason was that I ha- I'm a teacher and I have te- I was teaching uh, high school English literature and English language for a few years. And I always used this poem in my classes for the for the older students, especially when they hit grade 10, 11, and 12. Because at the time, Dylan was what? He hadn't had his 23rd birthday at that point. He was still only 22, which for the older kids I was teaching was only a few years older than them. And for someone so young to actually produce a poem of such depth and to perform it with such passion and energy, it just, it blows me away. And always, especially if you want to get young men like in their, their late teens interested in poetry. Something like that here hearing Dylan do that, it fires them up. And so, you know, I've always found it's been a really great poem to have, um, for that reason as well. Um, so, you know, I just I love it. I love the language in it. I love the way he performs it. Um the uniqueness of it. And uh I had to put it on my list of choices, and mm-hmm. I was so glad when you pulled it up, I was like, yay, let's do something different. I did put some wild cards in there <laughs> for you to choose from. Um, so this, this was one of them, and I'm, I'm really glad you picked it. And Dylan must have been feeling really poetic that day because, um, like you said, it was the 12th of April 1963 at Town Hall, New York, when it was performed and recorded. Um, and that day he also put one of his poems in the, um, the theatre bill. The, that people had. Um, I think it was uh, My Life in a Stolen Moment, maybe. And so he performed a poem and had a poem um, given out to all the audience members as well. So he must have been feeling poetic that day.
2: Yeah, I mean I'm glad you mentioned he he has of course written lots of other poems and they did they have appeared publicly you mentioned they've they appeared in the program or about that there were some that appeared on the the liner notes of his of his albums there was that one I forget where the one appeared the to to Geraldine on our miscellaneous birthday. Oh yeah, as, I love as, that one. There's that one and of course there's Tarantula which is the whole book of this sort of free verse kind of poetry that that got published later on in the in the 60s. But yep. it's kind of amazing how um how confident when, Bo- when Bob Dylan performs, when he's singing a song, how authoritative he sounds. Even at 22, 23, mm-hmm. he sounds like an old man who knows everything kind of, in a, in a good way. I don't mean that in a know-it-all way, but in a kind of just sage, uh, you know, Solomon-esque kind of way. And yet yep. the intro to this poem, he sounds incredibly nervous. Uh, he does. You know, I, and I love the intro where he he's, he gets a laugh too. Bob Dylan is—I've said before—he's very funny. He doesn't get enough credit yep. for it, but I love that the, he says that he was basically commissioned by some book. Uh, Where some magazine wanted to ask him, can you please explain what Woody Guthrie means to you in 25 words, (laughs) which gets a huge laugh. And I love the idea of like going to Bob Dylan and saying, can you give us your thought on this very profound subject and do it in 25 (laughs) words or less, which is kind of gutsy. It's like I wouldn't really limit Bob Dylan in that way. Um, And (laughs) I don't know whether that's true or not.
1: That's why he's not on Twitter.
2: Oh, that's true. There you go. Yeah, he probably can't limit himself. Like yeah, that.
1: and then he says, uh, you know, so I wrote out five pages and yeah. I just have to have them here. And, and yeah.
2: I love it, that little like, laugh where he goes, I have it here. And then he goes, I have it here, actually. <laughs> and he, you yeah. know, he sounds genuinely nervous. And it's, I'm not used to Bob Dylan sounding like that. So just that is sort of charming. And the, 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 the intro is so low key. Mm-hmm. And so kind of like, well, you mean he does say it's five pages, but you're like, well, all right. But then all of a sudden, boom. I mean, you're just in this torrent of, I mean, I try, and, I try and quote all the lyrics to any given song in an episode, but I can't do that for yeah. this thing, because this thing just goes on so, I mean, in a good way, again, but it goes on so long, there's just no way to, to go through it all line by line, because it's just, it's so dense.
1: It is. It really is. And, um, you know, I mean, one of the things he says in the introduction is he said, I'd like to say this out loud. And I think that hits a real nail on the head with Dylan as well. And he's probably nervous because he's never done that before. You know, he's very confident in performing because he's, you know, got that under his belt. This is the first time. And I think at the beginning he says, this is the first concert I played alone in New York, really. You know, so he's got this, you know, hall full of people. Um, his solo, he's on his own up there with nothing to do to distract anybody from the fact that their focus is on him and he's going to do something he's never done before. So, yeah, there is the nerves. But I think that the, you know, I'd like to say this out loud, I think that is one of the most essential things everybody should really know about Dylan is it's all about performance. That's what it is. You know, so, for example, when Andy Muir wrote his book, um, Bob Dylan and Shakespeare, the performing of it, you know, his whole book focused all the way through. How Shakespeare was exactly the same. It's not so much what the words on the page are; it's how they are performed, how they are mm. transmitted to the listening audience, and 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 what people can get from them. And I think that that was really important um, from Dylan. Oh, by the way, there was another poetry uh, book that I wanted to ask you whether you've got because I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's called the "Hollywood Photo Rhetoric." No, and I'm he, not familiar with that. Okay. Look for it. It's really brilliant. Um, It's a hardcover coffee table book. And it is a collection of photographs, black and white photographs by Barry Feinstein. Hmm. And Barry Feinstein and Dylan kind of like, Worked together, they collaborated because Feinstein had been a photographer in Hollywood during the end of like the classic Hollywood years. And I know we're kind of going off topic here, but I think this is really interesting. And, you know, listeners, if they haven't got the book, might like to look it up. And Feinstein had... Taken photographs. So, for example, he was at Marilyn Monroe's house the morning after she committed suicide or took an overdose or whatever, and had photographs of her. He wasn't inside the house, but he took pictures of her swimming pool and pictures of the pill bottle on the window, things like that. Very iconic pictures, pictures of Marlena Dietrich when she was older, Um, all sorts of pictures, you know, eccentric people who have. Cadillacs in their living room with the chandelier hanging over it and, you know, like all sorts of excesses of Hollywood. And Dylan took every single picture and wrote a poem to go with the picture without ever mentioning the names of the celebrities involved or anything. But he looked at that picture and he took a picture and they're all black and white pictures of like the end, the dying era of Hollywood. And Dylan wrote all the poems. I think it's really worthwhile having a look at that.
2: Does he, uh, is he credited as Bob Dylan uh, writing yep. the poem? Really? How have yes. I never heard of this?
1: <laughs> well, you know what? I found it by accident. This is really funny. About, oh gosh, 10 years ago now, I was on a school field trip with some kids in Canada and we went to Victoria and we got a uh, a tour of the Chapters bookstore, which is like, it's a chain bookstore, like like Borders and Bombs and Noble and whatnot, and um They allowed everybody in the party, including the teachers, to choose one book to keep for free. Hmm. So I'm going through the books and I'm looking on the shelf, just I'm watching the kids more than watching myself. And they were all looking at these like kind of anime books and, you know, all that kind of visual art stuff, which was quite cool. But I turned around and there was a there were just some coffee table books laid out and there was the Feinstein Dillon book. Sitting on the top, and I said to them, "Is this too expensive, or can I have it?" Because it was big, and they said, "No, nope, doesn't matter on the price. You get one book each." Wow! So I got it on the field trip for free. <laughs> but anyway, you no, know, it really is. It's called Hollywood Photo Rhetoric, and it's really worth getting hold of. The photographs are amazing, and Dylan's poems are incredible.
2: I, I can't believe I've never heard of this. I, that's yeah. remarkable. Wow! Yeah, I got so it. I got just it. As
1: a link get to down. Dylan and poetry because I know it kind of like it, it takes us away from Woody Guthrie, but. Just an interesting little snippet.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. i one of the, the takeaways I get from this this poem is, in it's to me it's very. Um, I mean, when I, I first heard it, I would have been like twenty. I would have been like twenty twenty one. I think twenty two. When I yeah ninety one, I would have been like twenty twenty one when I first heard it, and it 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 does feel very adolescent, kind of uh, in a good right. way because it's a lot of. You know, an awakening of somebody and they're seeing the world kind of for the first time and they're sort of disillusioned by what they're seeing. Uh, you know what I mean? There's a lot of just like yeah. ah, that ain't that ain't my thing. This isn't my thing. This isn't working, you know, and it's it's a lot of that. And I I enjoy it for that. But it's I, I'm not again, I'm not used to Bob Dylan sort of sounding like that. I, f- I feel like I'm used to him sounding more um, old man wisdom kind of thing. And this is more of, a, of an angry young man. And th- I always get the sense that this is him. Uh, placing himself, I mean, of course, we're, we're taking him at his word that he wrote Mm -hmm. this in 1963 when he could have been, he could be lying. He could have written this a bunch of years ago. But I, Mm -hmm. if, if, if we, if we believe him, I get the sense that this is him writing what he felt like when he first discovered Woody Guthrie. Mm-hmm. This is that that awakening. I mean, he's comparing Woody Guthrie to religion. He's comparing Woody Guthrie to some of the greatest um, examples of nature. You know, the Grand yep. Canyon at sundown and things like that. And he's discovering yep. the the discovery of Woody Guthrie to that. And so that's kind of what it feels like. You know, that, I mean, yep. that's what it felt like when I discovered Bob Dylan at nineteen. That's what it felt like to me. So I mean, he's able to bring himself back to when he was maybe 13 or 14, whenever it was that he first heard Woody Guthrie. And that's, that's a very powerful evocation that he manages to again, hold for five solid pages.
1: (laughs) You know what? I think you're right. There's, um, There's that line, isn't there, you know, and and to yourself, you sometimes say, I never knew it was going to be this way. Why didn't they tell me the day I was born? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's like that kind of where you get to a point, you suddenly realize you've got this youth and you don't really worry about too many things, you know. And you get to a point when you're a little bit older, you're just starting to come into adulthood and you realize life's not fair. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's almost this thing, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Why, you know, why am I getting this? bad roll of the dice when other people are having it so easy you can Mm -hmm. see people around you and uh you know we can talk about this in more depth if you you know as the poem goes on but in the poem there's a lot of people who treat other people really badly they're in it for the quick fix they they don't care who they tread on um they'll cheat they'll bluff you there's the 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 line about the card game. You know, where people get cheated by a bluff. They've got a really good hand, but they're scared to play it Mm -hmm. because the other person ahead of them looks so confident that they're scared that they're going to lose. So they back off only to find they had a stronger hand than the person bluffing. They feel cheated and frustrated. And you suddenly realize that this is what life's going to be like, you know, and you've got to find some way to get some hope and get some, um, some inspiration to keep you going through those times, to give you a voice to stand up against the... Um, all the the problems and and the people that you 're going to meet in life, um, yeah, so I think that that 's a really good point and I, it was definitely the way I felt when i descri- when I first discovered Bob Dylan, and I think every one of us who are like Dylan fans or you know other music fans too, they realize what it 's like that moment when it 's almost like that lightning strike mm-hmm. kind of moment, and I think you 're also very very correct about there's there 's a lot of the um The thematic connections between music, um, spiritual wonder, nature or inspiration. It's like that kind of and religion, it all kind of like um, comes together. And that's actually it's actually a a very um, it's a common uniting of themes that happens a lot in poetry. Um,
2: Yeah. Yeah, he. There's, there's lots of. Again, I'm going through, scanning through this uh, on the website, on, and there's, there's a lot of lines that I love that I, I think can get easily buried a little in the, in the mad rush of how much, just of how much is here. Yeah. Uh, but then you go through, and again, when you listen to the performance, uh, those lines pop out. I mean, I love when he, when he. You you mentioned the thing about the card game, and he says when you were faked out and fooled while facing the four flush, and all the time you were holding three queens. It's making you mad. It's making you mean. Like in the middle of Life magazine bouncing around the pinball machine and there's something on your mind that you want to be saying that somebody someplace ought to be hearing. And mm-hmm. I, I love that particular turn of phrase, the idea that you have something that you want to share with someone and you yep. maybe don't have the ability to share it or that or the, no one is hearing it and how frustrating that has got yep. to be. I mean, that, that's a, every podcaster's lament, is that sort of thing? <laughs> I, I have so many opinions that people need to hear. Uh, listen to me. <laughs> yeah, listen to me. You know, I mean, but, but I mean, it's there's, a, there's this mad rush of imagery, and then all of a sudden he'll drop something in that gets very sort of kind of quiet and powerful, and it, you yep. know, it makes you kind of like, wow, okay. And then he goes back to the whole mad rush of imagery, and it's just kind of this flow. Yep. And again, it, it's, it's amazing he's able to sustain it for like the eight minutes it takes to say it all.
1: Yeah. Well, that part, it's funny because I highlighted that part as one of the parts that I was really, you know, drawn to. Um, and it reminded me of Hard Rain. Like when I was reading that, um, it's like music is the way that protest singers can stand up and be heard. And actually, it's a way that people who don't have a voice can also join in. You imagine the singing on the strike lines and the picket lines. Um, and a protest movements, you know, how many of these protest movements where people feel they don't have a voice? They can sing it in an anthem, um, and I think the line from Hard Rain is, uh, "And I'll tell it and think it and speak mm-hmm. it, and breathe it, and reflect it from the mountains, so all souls can see it." You know, that that is the role of the singer, you know, to try and get people to to listen or to have their own voice, express their anger, express their frustration through that. That musical voice—it's—it it, is very, very powerful.
2: I love when he goes on, and he sees, after the line about he says somebody, somebody want to be hearing, and he says, uh, "You would, you wish you'd never taken that last detour sign." And you say to yourself, "Just what am I doing on this road I'm walking, on this trail I'm turning, on this curve I'm hanging, on this path I'm strolling, in the space I'm taking, in this air I'm inhaling? Am I mixed up too much? Am I mixed up too hard?" And I noticed that he used that exact line, am I mixed up too much, am I mixed up too hard, in an Mm -hmm. interview he gave with a reporter right after his motorcycle accident. One of, ah. one of the first people to interview him, I forget the name of the person, but the guy that like literally went up to Woodstock and interviewed him and said, "How are you doing?" And he said, "Well, I'm just kind of relaxing. I'm reading books, and I'm I'm just kind of taking stock." And he says, "I'm I wonder am I mixed up too much? Am I mixed up too hard?" I'm like, he's got that phrase lodged in his head, and here it is yep. coming out in an interview five years later.
1: That's incredible, you know, isn't it? You
2: know, I'm like I wonder is that something in his head that just really was meaningful to him and he just he just stored it away and there it is forever. But I remember when I read that interview and I was like my I was like, "Whoa, wait a minute. I know that line. That's a line from that from that poem." It was kind of
1: amazing. Yep. That is that is fantastic. That's a that's really really amazing because I I have a feeling that like you said, a lot of these things are ideas and images and expressions that mean an awful lot to Bob Dylan you know, at, at that time, but, you know, you're showing that it carried on uh, many years later. Um, yeah, it, it's amazing. And what I love about that section is that the whole poem is like, I know my kids, when I was teaching them, they would say, but there's until the end, there's no Woody Guthrie in this, in this poem. <laughs> right. And I'm like, no, he's there all the way through. Right. Um, and I think that, This section with all of the questions, it's like he's asking, what am I doing? Where am I going? And he has this whole list. And it's almost like that rhetorical question um, method. He uses it in so many songs, like Blowing in the Wind was the the main one, where where he's just asking question after question. But again, Hard rainy did it. You know, where have you been? Um, What did you do? What have you seen? Um, And those kind of the lists and the questions... I just think I just think it's very powerful and I think it's something that really meant something to Bob Dylan that he used over and over again both the structure the lines the ideas and and yeah I think this is a very powerful piece of work
2: and uh, the performance wise there's a there's a section later on where I don't know if he got I mean just just the just the reading of it um, mm-hmm. is is Uh, something to admire in its own because, and I've said this before in other episodes, like, when I quote these lyrics out loud, I get Um, Mm -hmm. tongue-twisted just reading them, let alone trying to sing them. So I'm just impressed at his sort of linguistic, you know, gifts that he can sort of get these words out in the, in the way he wants to say them. Say them. Um, yep. but, but at one point he says, when he starts talking about he says, what am I saying? What am I knowing on this guitar I'm playing, on this banjo I'm frailing, on this mandolin I'm strumming, in this song I'm singing, in the tune I'm humming, in the words I'm – and then he does this long pause. He goes, in the tunes I'm humming, in the words I'm writing. Mm-hmm. in this ocean in this words i'm thinking in this ocean of hours i'm all the time drinking first of all i love that pause where they, i'm mm-hmm. writing because it's kind of like you're kind of like huh uh, like he's got you kind of <laughs> on his ledge you know like did he just forget the nice word and then the line ocean of hours i'm all the time drinking i just think is one of the great pieces of imagery he's ever yep. come up with ocean of hours i'm all the time drinking i'm like that is yep. like whoa you
1: know like, that's- oh that that really is and i think it's again it it matches. We talked about this when we talked about uh, the Valentine's Day song, um, I Want You. And we talked about it again in, when we talked about Highlands. And I think whatever song you pull out or whatever performance, even a poem, you can pull out where he uses pauses. and But also he speaks about time and he gets that contradiction about how time can go really quickly. Mm-hmm but also feel like it's dragging and going really slowly. And he does that a couple of times in this poem as well. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of them that, um, you know, it's just, it's just beautiful. That imagery, though, that he uses is quite something. And I love that you picked out his linguistic style as well with this, because I get blown away by it completely. I mean, I, I studied applied linguistics and, you know, to see. So, for example, all the way through, he uses what? the academic people will call an Elysian, which is where you drop the G off the end of a word, mm-hmm. like catching mm-hmm. and writing and banging. And, and he does that. And this is what I love about this this poem, is it's the way that Woody Guthrie speaks. So he's using Woody Guthrie's kind of um, his phrasing and his his accent and his speech to reflect that it is about Woody Guthrie, that this comes from the place that Woody Guthrie comes from. And he also does something that, um, he, he puts an A at the beginning, like in the times they are a-changing, you mm-hmm. know. you know, mm-hmm. Lightnings are flashing, thunders are crashing, the windows are rattling and breaking, the rooftops are shaking. And that is something, that prefix of the letter A at the beginning of words. People here in England do it too. It actually goes back to the 16th century in England. Um, and my relatives used to do it um, from Lancashire up in the north of England. Oh, really? England. Yeah. They, my, my grandma used to do it when she talked. She'd often say that. And I found it fascinating that I heard Bob Dylan do it. But it, it's very common in old folk ballads, you know, a dancing we will go kind of thing, you know. It's, um, but it, it's very much an Appalachian uh, mountain tradition as well. A lot of the Appalachian songs have that in. And, uh, you know, Woody Guthrie did it too. And Dylan carries it on. And I just love that kind of – all those little linguistic touches that just connect to um, the origin of of what he's trying to speak about and the authenticity. Mm -hmm. Really good.
2: Yeah. Uh, After the Ocean of Hours line, he goes on and he says, who am I helping? What am I breaking? What am I giving? What am I taking? But you try with your whole soul best never to think those thoughts and never let those kind of thoughts gain ground or make your heart pound. But then again, you just know when you know when they're around, just waiting for a chance to slip and drop down. Uh, mm-hmm. Another great thing of you know Bob Dylan revealing that he you know is insecure too, which isn't something I always think of Bob Dylan as being insecure. I, I'm insecure, and I always have those thoughts that, that appear when I don't want them to. And then here he is admitting it. and I love the again, the turn of phrase, just waiting for a chance to slip. And drop down like they're these kind of nefarious little things. They're just waiting for their moment to get their hooks into you. And just the way yep. he says that and he even says, he continues on, he says, because sometimes you hear them when the night comes creeping and you fear that they might catch you sleeping and you jump from your bed from the last trap you're dreaming. And you can't remember from the best of your thinking if that was you in the dream that was screaming. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, man, you know? And again, you're like, yeah, yeah, Bob. Yeah, <laughs> you know? It's like-
1: yeah, absolutely. No, he sees right inside, doesn't he? I mean, all that negativity and doubt um, and that inner voice that's always talking. You know, even someone who comes across as confident as Bob Dylan, he has it too. Yeah. And uh, I, I really... Yeah, I love that. I highlighted that as one of my favorite parts as well. Um, it's it's quite something as well, because the next, the next part straight after that, after it was you in the dream that was screaming, he points out, he says, and you know that it's something special you're needing. And you know, there's no drug that'll do for the healing and no liquor in the land to stop your brain from bleeding. And that kind of admission is just, it's so beautifully put there. It's like, I know I've got to change. I've got to get out of this negative spiral. We all feel that when things are getting negative and you can feel yourself going into that downward spiral of, you know, doubts and, and anxiety and worries. And, you know, you've got to change. But making that change is so difficult. And it's just a really, a really sharp way of, of expressing that. And the frustration, the people who are downtrodden, they feel like they don't have a voice. A lot of people they turn to other things to get out of that spiral. So they might, you know, turn to alcohol or to drugs or to painkillers or, um, you know, something that's going to alter their reality. And I think what comes after that is absolutely one of the most powerful lines in this poem that I love. It's, it says, yeah, you need something special. All right. You need a fast flying train on a tornado track to shoot you someplace and shoot you back. <laughs> And I actually, the very first website I ever created, um, that's a Bob Dylan website, I called it Fast Flying Train on a Tornado Track. (laughs) That's the name of the website. It's still out there. Um, And it's got nothing to do with the fast flying train or Woody Guthrie, but it's about Bob Dylan. Um, And I just love that line so much, I, I, I titled my website after it. But the whole point is to me, I don't know what you think, but that train is Woody Guthrie there's a lot of people write about um you know the uh the symbolism in dylan's work of trains he uses trains and train tracks and train lines and even when he's painting he's got the the train tracks and blood on the tracks there's Mm -hmm. a lot of train references all the way through his work
2: can't you hear that duquesne whistle blowing
1: absolutely there you go you know that that you know that kind of uh... It's very American, those big long distances to be covered. And of course, would he go through riding the trains and the hobos riding the trains and the, the the things that Dylan used to speak about when he wasn't particularly being very honest about his his youth, you know, about uh, jumping on the train with the freak <laughs> shows and the circuses and
2: <laughs> my parents are dead. Hobos. I worked at a circus in New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, yeah all right, exactly. Bob, I'm sure you
1: No, know, it's like you know, uh, he, all of this kind of comes together. There's a, there's a really good essay by someone called Brian Shayette, I think that's how you say his name. And it's called On the D Train. And it's in a book called Do You, Mr. Jones? Bob Dylan with the Poets and Professors, which is a collection of kind of essays and thoughts about Bob Dylan. And he wrote an essay about this imagery, the train imagery in Dylan's music. And he mentions this. And I think... The idea of Woody Guthrie actually being something, or someone, his work being something that he can take you outside of your normal life and bring you right back into mm-hmm. it at the same time. Mm-hmm. He could shoot you there and shoot you back. So the songs they have humor, um, they have a real reference to people's lives, and so people can get a lot of um, a lot of their personal experiences and frustrations. They can get it out through the songs, and I just think that 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 image of the fast flying train on a tornado track that's woody Guthrie he's the power of natural power of tornadoes shooting you there and shooting you back <laughs> the cyclone wind on the steam engine howler. Um, you know that, that's, that's about Guthrie. Yeah,
2: I I I'm glad you, you brought that up. And you said you mentioned your your students were like, well, he doesn't mention when he got And you're like, well, no, he's in he's in the whole thing. He's from the beginning and end. And that that line about uh, we'll shoot you someplace and shoot you back to me, it's like, well, that's the length of the song. That's the that's how long it took him to listen to the song. And now, I mean, because Bob has talked about in interviews, he mentioned in the No Direction home where he talked about listening to the radio. How about he was like straining to get some faraway radio stations. Uh, mm-hmm. When he was in Hibbing, and gotcha. he, would hear, he would hear these songs that he would you know dial in, and I'm like, well, that's what it is. That's that's he's 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 been deposited back in his bedroom mm-hmm. uh, after the three minutes of drifting too far from shore that he was listening to, or whatever, or you know, right. or Hank Williams or whatever he was listening to. And I I love that, and I like that at this point in the the poem. The whole emphasis of it turns because the first it's it, it, it's sort of like we're at the second half of the the poem now, but it's the first half is the restlessness. I need this mm-hmm. thing. I'm missing something, and I'm looking for something. And yep. then it turns with the you need something special, and then he starts honing in on what is it that you need, and you yep. know he's the, you need the cyclone wind, you need a greyhound. Graham busts Barno No race that won't laugh at your looks, your voice, or your face, and by any number of bets in the book will be long, rolling long after the bubblegum craze, which is, I guess, we're referring to Bob's own work. Um, mm-hmm. You need something to open a new door to show you something you've seen before, but overlooked a hundred times or more. You need something to open your eyes. You need something to make it known that it's you and no one else that owns that spot that you're standing, that space that you're sitting, that the world ain't got you beat, that it ain't got you licked, it can't get you crazy, know how many times you might get kicked. I love that mm-hmm. bit about the space that you're standing. You know, the, yeah. the, the, I mean, the spot that you're saying, that space that you're sitting. That I mean, of course, that's Bob Dylan talking about being on stage at that very moment. But just mm-hmm. in life, you're owning yeah. the moment. You're owning the space that you're taking up and you're not just sort of. Filling a space, you're owning it. And I love that's a very, very powerful series of uh, images.
1: I, I agree with you. I think as well, the way it comes back to Guthrie is if you think of this land is your land, this land was made for you and me. It's mm-hmm. your land. You own that spot. And I think that a lot of people in the labor movement at that time when Guthrie was writing and traveling around um, – they were trying to emphasize to people the one thing that you always own is yourself. You own your body. You own your labor. You own the spot where you're standing. This is, you know, this is your power. Um, and I think they were fighting for a lot of recognition with that. Um, and I love the way that that ties back right back to Woody Guthrie with this. This land is your land. You know, you own that space. This is your place. Um, and actually there's another there's another link that um, right at the beginning of the Dylan poem, does the the second line, which also takes us back to this land is your land, there's a the line that says, When you think you're too old, too young, too smart or too dumb, that is a direct um, quote or kind of a kind of an extended Dylan style quote of Guthrie's introduction to this land is your land. When it was released on the album bound for glory, he did a little introduction at the beginning and he actually said, uh, because you're either too old, too young, too fat, too slim or too ugly. And, oh, wow. and so I think that there's a lot of places in here where Dylan does actually like check back to, to Guthrie's own lines and words. And slip them in there and and that 's a really that uh, you pick that part out, and yeah that that's that links right the way back
2: oh that 's wonderful, I had no yeah. idea
1: it's uh, yeah I, I just love these little tiny it shows that dylan 's been paying an awful lot of attention he 's been absorbing these Woody Guthrie songs and his introductions, even I think I, I know I was reading about when Dylan went to visit Woody Guthrie in hospital because of course Woody Guthrie was hospitalized with Hun- huntingdon 's career, uh, which had killed his mother. Earlier, he watched his mother decline and, and die when he was a child. And uh, he ended up with Huntington's career himself, Woody Guthrie. And Dylan went to visit him a lot in the hospital. And uh, he used to, you know, it's the, the joke that he was like a Woody Guthrie jukebox, right? right it didn't matter right. what, what song Guthrie asked to hear, he could play it. Uh, and he often did it with exactly the same phrasing and intonation and guitar licks that, that Woody Guthrie would have done. Um, and so he obviously had this whole lexicon like absorbed into his uh into the fabric of his very being and i just i just love it when it pops out i think there's an interesting point though um about the title of this poem i know we're skipping around a little bit (laughs) but um this 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 has always fascinated me is this the poem was performed in 1963. Woody Guthrie was still alive then, and he he didn't pass away until 1967. Um, And this is called Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie. And the word last is actually a really important word in the title, and it's important to this poem as well. Um, I I think it was Stephen Scobie who pointed out the importance of the title being Last Thoughts, because what I think is that we had Dylan, who had absorbed all of, all of Woody Guthrie's work. He'd, he'd read Bound for Glory and the other Woody Guthrie books. He had visited Woody Guthrie. He'd absorbed the whole, um, you know, his, his songbook. The Woody Guthrie songbook was all inside his head. And I think it was, ju- it was more to Dylan than just the songs, though. It was the way he dressed, it was his mannerisms, it was the way he changed the way he spoke and his performance. his first ever solo song written song that he had on an album was song to Woody right,
2: um, right. So he was
1: doing covers other than, but he but he put song to woody on 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 the first album and and that was the only one he'd written himself on that one I think if i'm not mistaken um but You know, so this this is very important to him. The fact he's calling it last thoughts made me stop and, and wonder. And when I went back and looked and followed the Stephen Scobie kind of pathway, in 11 Outlined Epitaphs, he actually did write about Woody Guthrie in there too. And he called Woody Guthrie the last idol, which I thought was really interesting. I think Dylan wrote... You ask, how does it feel to be an idol? It'd be silly of me to answer, wouldn't it? And I think that, you know, by 1963, Dylan was moving towards finding his own voice a bit more and his own identity, and he was moving away from, or at least preparing to move away from, the work shirt, the jeans, the boots, the flat cap, the protest songs, the folk singer image, and all those mannerisms. And I think he was slowly becoming... More and more of a new identity, but that part of Woody Guthrie would always be part of him, and and I think that's what he saw. There was a, there's a book by Mike Marcusy that's really interesting, um, and Mike Marcusy, uh pointed out. I think the book's called Wicked Messenger, and Markey pointed out that you know Dylan wasn't just mimicking Woody Guthrie; he was actually immersing himself in it, and it was a connection between them. It was like they were morphing into one person for Dylan. <laughs> you know? Like part of Woody Guthrie was m- morphing into him. And it was, it's like, it was a purer form of what he was wanting to be with the songs, the authenticity, um, the uh, the Americana almost, the resilience, the connection to the land, the connection to the people, the use of language, everything. Was fascinating Dylan, and he was connected to it. And uh, I think he said, you know, the interview that he gave for Scorsese, you know, uh, I was born far away from where I was supposed to be, right, trans- right, you know, that kind of thing. Where I think he felt like that was his destiny, that was his way of that, that like, you know, take off the labels, take off the confining kind of uh, boxes that were all put into. And I think he saw that in Woody Guthrie too. I think he he probably felt very strongly that he wanted to be like that. Woody Guthrie always avoided labels. He always managed to not get himself pigeonholed. And I think that Dylan uh, um, respected that and also wanted to do that himself. Um, I think there's a really good quote by Guthrie about being pigeonholed, where somebody tried to, to get him to admit to being a communist in an interview. And he said, you know, left wing, right wing, chicken wing. I wish I could say this in Woody Guthrie's voice. <laughs> left wing, right wing, chicken wing. It's the same thing to me. I sing my songs wherever I can sing them. I ain't a communist necessarily, but I've been in the red all my life. Now that quote to me, number one, there's the word play about left wing, right wing, chicken wing, and then saying I've been in the red all my life. Like those those two puns, I think, that's something that Dylan does all the time, too. And the fact that he won't be pinned down, you know, that's something that Dylan does, too. He just mm-hmm. wants to sing his songs. He just wants to do his songs and come from an authentic place. He doesn't want a label. He doesn't want people to confine him. And in fact, there's a rumor I read about, um, I think it was in Will Kaufman's book about Woody Guthrie, that um, he applied to joined the Communist Party in 1943. This is Woody Guthrie. But because he was so kind of, like, difficult to pin down and a bit, a bit slippery, um, the people in the, the local Communist Party in New York, they, they didn't quite trust him. They didn't know whether he was coming from the right place. And so they actually turned down his application. If that rumor is true, that's quite something. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> but, yeah, so that kind of trying to be authentic and not be pinned down, I think that's a really important connection between Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan as well. And I think it comes through in this poem. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh,
2: I love the idea. <laughs> I love the idea, again, it's when you say it's last thoughts. I mean, when you first hear mm-hmm. that, you think it's like, you know, many people would take that as like it's a memorial. And as you pointed yeah. out, Woody Guthrie wouldn't die for another four years. And yeah, it's not a memorial. It's a memorial to Bob Dylan sort of saying, all right, I'm moving on to this new phase. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of be influenced by different things. I'm gonna take everything that I took from Woody Guthrie and, 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 and immersed in it and then move on forward. And it, it's, it's easy to mistake that because you're like, well, that he, you know, is is he is he, This is his epitaph? No, it's not an epitaph for the guy. Um, and then I love when he said when he moves on and he's talking about all the things that you, you where you're not going to find the thing you're looking for, and you can't find it on a dollar bill. I love that he mentions you're not going to find it in a nightclub, in no no nightclub, yacht club, and it ain't in the seats of the supper club, which of course Bob himself would play uh, many years later. But I love when he says, and as sure as hell, you're bound to tell. No matter how hard you rub, you ain't just you ain't you ain't uh, going to find it on your ticket stub. I love that because he's kind of like digging himself a little too. like he's like, you mm-hmm. not don't don't look too hard in it for me either, uh, yep. which I like. You got to find it yourself. I love that. I love that. He's he's sort of, you know, saying I'm bestowing this wisdom upon you. But at the same time, don't look too hard into me because that might be not what you're looking for. And I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that he's he's bringing he's elevating himself and knocking himself down at the same time.
1: That That's a really good point. And by the way, you summarized that, that point about last thoughts. That was exactly what I was trying to say, and you <laughs> said it so eloquently. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right, because he lists off all these things that, you know, people are always trying to find self-worth and happiness in external things, in, in pop stars, in money, in wealth, in fame, in yachts, winning the lottery. You know, they have this empty, superficial way of of uh, of, of Trying to find something that's meaningful, but they're never going to find it that way. And I I just think that's a really, really good list. And then I think just after the list, he said, um, "And Uncle Remus can't tell you and neither can Santa Claus. Hmm. You know, it's like it's fairy tales. People are following, you know, ideas that aren't substantial. They're not real. And, uh, you know. I think that list is really good and even even the language that he uses he uses bubblegum again there you know the he says and it ain't in the cream puff hairdo or cotton candy clothes and it ain't in the dime store dummies or bubblegum goons and again this idea of bubblegum it's it's kind of like to me, Dylan was pro- was a teenager in the 50s and he, he you know, he would have seen the, the growth of rock and roll and the teeny boppers and the ankle socks, the bobby socks and the bubble gum. And, and you know, it all was becoming very superficial mm-hmm. and very short lived. It was commercializing. Music was becoming commercialized. Fashion was becoming commercialized. And I think that that transitional, you know, just like a piece of bubble gum, you chew it for a few minutes and you blow a bubble and it pops and it's gone. And all that kind of, that, that very flimsy, superficial, short-lived happiness and glitz and glamour, that's what's being sold as the American dream to people. Mm-hmm. All these things that are being sold to them uh, by the people who are out there to make a quick buck, the line says, you know, um, the 50... The 50-star generals and flipped-out phonies who turn you in for a tenth of a penny. You know, th- there's people out there who will sell their, their grandmother for to make a book. And, mm-hmm. you know, people are buying it and lapping it up and thinking it's going to buy them happiness. And it's, it's really not. Um, so I just, I love that that list of all those kind of superficial, uh, shiny ribbon and bow kind of um, emptiness. You know, these gift wrap boxes, they sure look nice on the outside, but you open them and they're absolutely empty. Mm-hmm um yeah
2: well i love when he heads, when he heads into this part of the the poem and he to me it gains in intensity he actually picks up the pace a little bit and he goes on and he says you, you mentioned the uh the 50 star generals and he says who breathe and burp and bend and crack and before you can count from one to ten do do it all over again but this time behind your back my friend the ones that wheel and deal, wheel wheel and deal and whirl and twirl and play games with each other in the sandbox world you can't find it in the no-talent fools who run around gallant and make all the rules for the ones that got talent. And ain't ones, and it ain't in the ones who got any talent but think they do and think they're fooling you. The ones who jump on the wagon just for a while because they know it's in style to get their kicks, get out of it quick, and make all kinds of money and chicks. And you yell to <laughs> yourself and you throw down your hat saying, Christ, do I got to be like that? Ain't there no one here who knows where I'm at? Ain't there no one here who knows how I feel? Good God Almighty, that stuff ain't real. And I will – that that part – really hit me um, in the temple when I first mm-hmm. heard it because it was it was exactly how I felt um, mm-hmm. and just and I love the the line about christ do i got to be like that just the frustration of like do i have to subject myself to this nonsense yeah. and i found the line that stuff ain't real to be very very powerful and i find it interesting that if you look at the lyrics on this on again on bobdylan.com that mm-hmm. line that stuff ain't real is in all caps. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The rest of the poem is in normal, you know, init- yep. initials and then, you know, lowercase, but that line, that stuff ain't real is in all caps. And it makes me feel like that's almost the, the sum up to this whole thing is that line. that's how important it was to Bob Dylan. And I remember the first time I saw this on the website, I went, I was like, Bob, yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know, I just felt, I felt yep. such a kinship with this guy.
1: Absolutely. No, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And, um I think you know back in the sixties as well, I think there was a time when there was like a, a bit of a mortgage crisis with when it came to um, money lenders and stuff and uh, you know so the things he 's talking about kind of like it 's almost like the bankers, the real estate agent mortgage mortgage lenders um a bit about the sandbox in an earlier line, the ones that wheel and deal and whirl and twirl and play games with each other in this sandbox world. And I, I really think that line is, um, you know, they are treating life like it's not real. Mm-hmm. They can play games with these huge amounts of money and they'll either win or they'll lose the game. But to them, it doesn't matter. To them, it's just a sandbox they're playing. It's not going to affect them. While other mm-hmm. people are going to be homeless on the streets and kicked out of their houses and foreclosed they're just still playing and they just move on to the next game. And I I, I really think that the, by the time he gets to that stuff ain't real. Absolutely. That's the that's the punctuation mark. That's the exclamation point yeah. at the end of at the at the end of that section that brings the whole poem together. And yeah, it's a brilliant line. And the way he reads it as well, like you say, he just he gathers up pace. I I don't know when that guy breathes. Yeah. I oh, man, up, yeah. Like listening to him say this, I keep I keep like you almost get breathless listening to him, right? Because mm-hmm. he—well, he, he did say he could hold his breath longer than Crusoe, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but you know, but he just puts this power, and he doesn't stop, and it's relentless, and it's just boom, 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 and it's this stuff ain't real, just. Boom! Right there, yeah, and yeah. yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Uh. So then he moves on, and he he says, but any game, you're at a game. You ain't your race. And then he starts, you know, pointing you. Okay, we've we've summed up that you and I are on the same page. Here. This stuff ain't real. Now, where where are you going to look? And he starts talking about where where did he look? Where do he look for the oil well gushing candle that's glowing? And then he says, you can smell two kinds of hallways. You can twist, touch, and twist two kinds of doorknobs. You go to the church of your choice, or you can go to Brooklyn State Hospital. You'll find God in the church of your choice. And you'll find Woody Guthrie in the Brooklyn State Hospital, and though it's only my opinion, I may be right or wrong. You'll find them both in the Grand Canyon at sundown, mm-hmm. and boom, we are done. And again, the audience, there's this rapturous applause. I mean, of course, they were there to see Bob Dylan, and they were, you know, they were they were fans. But I mean, it's just an extraordinary performance. And again, the idea of comparing. You know, you find may you may find it in your religion, but I find I found my religion in Brooklyn State Hospital with Woody Guthrie. Mm-hmm. It's just such an enormously powerful image, and I get, think the crowd. I, I can only imagine what it must have been like to be sitting in that seat, hearing this live mm-hmm. in front of you. And you, you know, there's that tension. You're like, you don't want him to screw up. You know, you don't want him to like missay say a line or something like that or break the spell. But he never does. And then just to end it at those very in the Grand Canyon at sundown, and boom, and we're done. And it's just. You're like just you, you. Again, your head just snaps back. Like wow, wow, what a performance I just heard.
1: Yep, yep, absolutely. And I think this is this whole ending is is really interesting. First of all, again, you've got this list that is Woody Guthrie. You know, he is the candle that's burning. He's the lamp that's burning. The candle that's glowing. He's the light in the dark for people to aim to. Um, but there's the line: Where do you look for this oil well gushing? Mm. And I think that's a really important line and because and, I think that, that everything, all the imagery that Dylan's using, he's trying to bring it back to Woody Guthrie. Now, Woody Guthrie grew up in Okemah, and when he was a young kid, they struck oil just outside of town. And what had been like a sleepy kind of rural place um, in Oklahoma suddenly became this boom town. Everybody flew in, all you know, just came rushing in. All the workers, all the people who were coming to make it rich quick, there was suddenly oil wells. And Woody Guthrie witnessed firsthand this boom where the land was just stripped. They took all the oil that they could. They just pulled it all out of there without caring about the people who lived there. You know, all the buildings went up, the casinos, the bars, everything. And there was lots of money around and people were living at large for a few years. And then the oil ran out. And everybody left and nobody helped the people who were left, you know, that their town had been ripped apart. And I think that had a real effect on Woody Guthrie to watch him. I mean, he writes about it in Bound for Glory. And, you know, he would hang out as a kid, you know, he'd hang out on street corners and see what was going on in the bars and and the dancers and the casino. You know, there'd be like betting tables. Uh, card games and whatnot, and he'd see these people coming in, the gamblers that were coming in to make a quick buck off the oil workers. And, you know, it. it I think it really affected um, Woody Guthrie. And I think that putting in the oil well gushing, you know, like, it, sure, it's a symbol of wealth and power, but it's all, also a symbol of the system of how, you know, you can go from boom to bust in a, in a split second. Mm-hmm. And lose everything. And uh, there's some people out there who don't care if they walk away and take everything with them and leave you. Um, and I think that had a really big effect on Woody Guthrie. And I, I kind of think that that might be why Dylan put that imagery in there. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Um, but also, I was reading that some people criticize that last part. I feel the same way about it. And though it's only my opinion, I may be right or wrong, you'll find them both in the Grand Canyon at sundown. He speaks it at a different Speed, it's a different rhythm to the rest of the poem, a different tone of voice. I really think it works. I think it's a powerful ending. But when I was reading about it, there were some people uh, who criticized this as being trite, as being kind of a rhetorical gimmick that doesn't fit with the rest of the poem and and weakens it somehow. And I don't like that kind of negativity about (laughs) this. because I don't think it's supposed to be trite. I don't think it was a gimmick to bring the poem to an end. I actually think it was done very deliberately when I read it, or especially when I hear Dylan perform it, even more than reading it on the paper. And I think it goes right back to what you were talking about right at the beginning of the show, that it combines all of those elements. It combines spiritual wonder, um, music, nature. Um, All of that power is right there, all combined into one final image of the Grand Canyon at sundown. And when you think about this land is your land, you know, that's absolutely where it should culminate. And sundown, of course, is is the imagery for something dying away, something fading away. And uh, I think it was a very deliberate ending, and I don't find it trite. I don't find it a gimmick. I think it fits with the poem, and I think the way Dylan performs it, it brings it to a perfect conclusion
0: yeah
2: i mean it it winds down i mean it it brings the energy you couldn't you wouldn't you couldn't really end this with the mad rush of imagery that he was doing just a couple of verses ago or whatever you know i mean you need to kind of kind of take a breath like okay you know just the the quiet idea of being at the grand canyon at sundown and this you know so yeah no i think it's a perfect idea i don't I don't understand that.
1: I don't understand but that criticism about I'm it i was surprised all. when I read criticisms of it, and I thought, wow, they listen to the same poem that I'm listening to. But then I guess some people always want to have something to say that, you know, goes against the grain or something. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but no, I, I really like that, that uh, culmination. Yeah, definitely. it's
2: it's wonderful. And I it said, it's it's. I, I don't want to say it's a shame that he never wrote, said another poem out loud, because obviously... Uh, this one sort of stands unique. It's the one time that he did it, and makes it so special. Uh, I mean, I wonder if he's ever had the, the the impetus to do it, and then just hasn't, or you know, or this was. And and then I also wonder, was he ever tempted to turn this into a song? I mean, at, at what point during this process uh, did he start writing and decide, oh no, this is going to be a poem. It's never going to be a song. Um, you know, I, we don't know. I mean, doesn't you know, I've never heard him ever asked about this. Mm. So uh,
1: it'd be That's fascinating a really to good- know. That's a really good question. Um, and what I I, I think I, I, is interesting to me as well is that, you know, when you compare that to song to Woody, like song to Woody is um, it's done very much in the style of a Woody Guthrie song. Right. Um, the structure of it is is uh, very different from this. You know, you've got the, the chords are very simple. Um, I think the, the almost like the, the free thought, the free thought flowing poetry and and the lines. I think Dylan has spoken about how poetry, he, he actually, I think in an interview, Dylan said that he dis, he had a disagreement with Woody Guthrie once when they were talking about this because Dylan had said that he found a lot more freedom with a poem that you could make it any structure that you wanted, you could make it any length that you wanted, you could change the lines, you could change the rhyming patterns, whereas a song is very much a structure. Um, and i think guthrie had disagreed with him on that and said <laughs> that he felt that songs were the free way to express themselves and that poetry was very formal and and restricted and so yeah i mean i, I guess dylan sees them as two completely different uh, forms but and it's funny thinking coming off the back of the nobel prize that you know i think to me it's almost like dylan's work is a combination of the lyrics the music And the performance all together. And that's what gives it power. If you take one part, you can read the songs as poetry on the paper. Um, You know, people have done instrumental versions of his melodies. um, And people do covers of Dylan that are not his performance. But it's never quite as powerful as the unity of those three things coming together. The the words, the, the melody and his performance all come together. Um, to make something that's quite unique. Um and so but I wonder if Dylan in his head sees poetry as a completely different form to the songwriting and and so, you know, like you say, I mean, did it start off as a song and he decided to write a poem? Did he ever think later he could put it to music? I don't I don't know. That's yeah. a really good point because the two are so different. I mean they're obviously two pieces dedicated to Woody Guthrie. Um Different structure, whole different feeling. Yeah, to both I'd... of. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The,
2: the, obviously, the the voice and the melody. I mean, it's always more than the sum of its parts. And while mm-hmm. reading these words are great on BobDolan. dot com, it's really you do have to listen to the performance. Just the the breathing of it and the yep. the, the way he r- rushes some lines and then slows some down and then the way it ends. So it is. It's really a wonderful, wonderful piece. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about this.
1: Oh, me too. Me too. No, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, I love it. I think it's so powerful. And to think that Dylan did that when he was so young as yeah, well, yeah. it shows a level, like you said, it shows a level of maturity and insight and wisdom um, and talent that, uh, you know, just just blows you away when you think about that and think about how young he was. Um, and I was really glad that you asked me to come on again. And I was glad that we got to talk about this particular performance. So, yep, um, it's been another fun one.
2: Yeah, I'm always happy <laughs> to talk to you, Tara. So why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, you can always find me on social media. I'm on Facebook. um, And I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is just my name, Tara underscore Zook. Um, And I have a website, which is TaraZook at YolaSite.com. I said this in the other episode, if you put my name and Bob Dylan's name into (laughs) Google, my website will pop up, Tara Zook (laughs) and Bob Dylan. Um, So yeah, come and find me if you want to read it like articles that I've written, reviews that I've written. Uh, there's not a whole amount there, but it's growing. What's it? Young, but daily growing is as, as, as this. <laughs> right, co- exactly. So, you know, anybody wants to pop by, follow me on Twitter, uh, pop over and say hello on Facebook. Uh, there's lots going on on Facebook. Lots of Bob Dylan groups there that are very active. And yeah, love to love to hear from other Dylan fans. It was a nice conversation um, on the fire and water site, the Pod Dillon site as well underneath. So if anybody wants to pop comments under there, I'll try and answer them. Uh, Absolutely, yes. I I love it when conversations start from discussions like this and uh, yeah, let's let's do it. So Thank you again for inviting me back.
2: Oh, thank you, Terry. Yeah, of course. Uh, you can follow the show over on the website, finewaterpodcast.com. And there you can leave a comment on this or any of the uh, other episodes of Pod Dylan. We're also, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher and on Spotify. We're always talking Bob over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, Go to patreon.com slash FW Podcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward and another pledger who will remain masked and anonymous for their support of Pod Dylan. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Stay healthy, and we will see you later. Bye.
0: The ones that wheel and deal and whirl and twirl and play games with each other in the sandbox world. You can't find it either in the no-talented fools that run around gallant and make all the rules for so the ones that got talent. And ain't the ones that ain't got any talent but think they do and think they're fooling you. The ones that jump on the wagon just for a while because you know it's in style. To get their kicks, get out of it quick and make all kinds of money and chicks. And you yell to yourself and you throw down your hat saying, Christ, do I got to be like that? Ain't there no one here that knows where I'm at? Ain't there no one here that knows how I feel? Good God Mighty, that stuff ain't real. No, but that ain't your game. It ain't your race. You can't hear your name. You can't see your face. You got to look some other place. And where do you look for this hope that you're seeking? Where do you look for this lamp that's burning? Where do you look for this oil well gushing? Where do you look for this candle that's glowing? Where do you look for this hope that you know is there and out there somewhere? And your feet can only walk down two kinds of roads. Your eyes can only look through two kinds of windows. Your nose can only smell two kinds of hallways. You can touch and twist and turn two kinds of doorknobs. You can either go to the church of your choice or you go to Brooklyn State Hospital. You find God in the church of your choice, you find Woody Guthrie in Brooklyn State Hospital. And it's only my opinion. I may be right or wrong. You find them both in Grand Canyon, sundown.